This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I'm so excited and inspired today. One of my all-time favorite guests has been with us since our inception. Part of the reason the audience grows is this incredible, incredible, incredible people, these incredible people like my brother here today, who is just the author of so much good material and books, and we're going to get into that. And But first, I just want to warmly welcome once again my good friend, Dr. Eddie Gloud. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing well. How are you, Paul? Fabulous, fabulous. We haven't talked in a little bit. I was just... Curious, how are you doing personally and spiritually and soulfully with the whole COVID pandemic as we hear in the first week of December? You know, it's it's up and down, you know, you know, as you try to grapple with um, the isolation, um, you know, being confined in one's home, not seeing my students, you know, um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, being able to be still, although I'm just sitting in front of Zoom conference calls all day. Um, but um, it's 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 up and down. But you know, today is a good day, so I'm I'm thankful. Any thoughts on the fact that we lost three thousand souls yesterday in one day, more than nine eleven? The day before was two thousand and change. These are people: school teachers, bus drivers, beloveds, husbands, grandfathers, brothers and sisters, and yet it feels like we've just grown numb. I know I haven't, but my heart breaks, but there is a sort of a numbing factor, but I'm still sitting with mouth agape in that we're not responding. It seems like we're just watching the numbers and arguing about where to put the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, you know, I think it's um, it's indicative of, of, of the moral rot at the heart of the country, that we aren't tending to our dead, that we're leaving death... Um, to, to, to one's private affairs, right? That it's yours and yours alone. Um, no national rituals, no national recognition for the most part. Um, you know, I, I, I said before uh, that, you know, the modern U.S. nation state came into existence in some ways because of mass death. You think about the Civil War and, you know, it introduced modern warfare to the world and the carnage uh, that was left in its wake. And it was precisely in grappling with the scale of death that in some ways ushered in a new form of union. Well, in our moment, um, death is yours and yours alone. It actually reveals more how broken we are. Um, and people are having to, you know, in some ways they're not only having to deal with it only in their private uh, affairs in their private lives, right? But people are dying alone. Folks can't be there with them, the people who love them. So um, it's it's very traumatic and, and very indicative, in my view, of how broken we are as a society. Beautiful. And I would agree. Is this the canary in the coal mine literally dying on American unfettered capitalism and the stratification that we see? in our everyday lives and the culmination of it here in 2020? Well, it's certainly an indication of how selfish this place is. 
right? Um, you know, I, I, I know I, I, you know, I, it's as if some people are saying to themselves that, you know, because death hasn't reached my door, um, I'm okay, right? And they can go out and do whatever they want to do. They don't have to wear masks. They don't have to believe that COVID is real. Um, and, you know, that kind of selfishness, that kind of refusal to, to be concerned with others, right, undermines any, any robust conception of the public good, any idea of national sacrifice or obligation to one's fellows. And so, you know, if you, if you think about it, not, not just so much for, for democracies, although it's absolutely central for democracies, but just for a society generally, if you have no fellow feeling, no real, real you know, genuine sense of mutuality, how do you hold everything together? Um, so it seems to me that the kind of selfishness and greed that has defined this place for so long and particularly intensely over the last 40 years has come home to roost. I'm glad you tied it to the inauguration of Ronald Reagan because I do see that as a, a tipping point where it went a certain way. And when you were just describing all that, for some reason, I felt like you were also describing the anatomy of a cancer cell in a human body. When And if it grows and multiplies, it will destroy the host organism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which, you know, there is something... Uh, diseased in the social body of the U.S. is if we want to kind of extend the metaphor. Um, and Donald Trump is just, or was just, um, a symptom. And too many people wanted to identify him as the sickness. Uh, when the sickness cuts so much deeper, right? It's capillary. It's in the bloodstream of the country. And so, you know, um, we just saw recently here in Staten Island, police, New York police had to break up a bar party and, you know, folks are waving their American flags and, you know, declaring, you know, declaring their commitment to liberty uh, in the midst of, you know, endangering, you know, themselves and, and, and their loved ones and people around them. And, you know, the Thanksgiving holidays, we saw millions of people travel in spite of, uh, uh, the warnings and, you know, death is a lag factor, right? It's a lagging indicator. And so they're preparing us now for the, for the storm, for the, the utter horror of what's to come over the next few weeks and months. So I hope people listen in December, but um, yeah, man, we're, we're, you know, America is broken and we need to understand that to shift the image. Mm. Oh, amen. And you have the word doctor attached to your name. Do you see a prescription or a lifestyle change? How do, is there a way out of the darkness? Or does it really have to go completely down in flames and disintegrate to maybe rise like the phoenix and rebirth itself? Do we have to learn the hardest way possible? And I'm thinking in my mind, too, about climate change and everything else. Or is there a way out before we hit the iceberg? Do you see anything way? I mean, you're visionary. Well, I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> no, to me you are. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think we've already hit the iceberg, Paul. Um, it's been, and, you know, I think that I think that much is clear to me. Um, and it seems to me that we need a kind of new moral and social contract uh, because the old one has been shredded. 
it's been torn up and and cast away. And, you know, that old social contract involved a relationship between capital and labor. Uh, It assumed certain uh, um, premises about, you know, one standing in the public domain. I mean, I would say this post-civil rights movement and the like. But what we've seen over the last 40 years, and again, Reagan, Reaganism is at the heart of this for me, um, is uh, how greed and selfishness have, and, and racism have overwhelmed everything. Um, and so it seems to me we need a new kind of moral and social contract to kind of announce our obligations to each other, our commitments to one another. And to my mind, that, that there are three legs that, 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 or three components that are critical to this contract. And one is that, you know, um, nobody should go broke because they're sick. We should make a commitment that everyone in our society should be taken care of if they're ill. Um, and two, uh, no matter your color or your zip code, every child in the United States should have access to the best education in the world, from K through 12 and then even in secondary education, right? So we should begin to, we should commit ourselves finally to educating all of our children. And then the last is to shift from um, or the third, rather, is to shift from the frame of law and order to a frame of safety and security. Every human being deserves to be safe. Every community deserves to be secure. And what does it mean to think of safety and security outside of this carceral framework? Right? It involves investing in human beings, right? So I think we need a kind of new moral and social contract to, to announce a different way of being together. What, what, what will it take for that to, to happen? Well, look, by February, the CDC is saying that we could have up to 450,000 dead. You know, can you imagine by February, 450,000 Americans dead? Right now, an American is dying, what, every two minutes? Right now, of COVID-19? So um, we've hit the iceberg. Um, the reality of our world and our fail- failures are staring us squarely in the face. Uh, We have to figure out what we're going to do. And I don't think we have to worry about, Paul, uh, convincing everyone that they need to do it. Uh, Those of us who are committed to a much more more just world, we need to do it. Mm, I like that because you can't bring everybody to the higher ground. Everybody has to want to go there. And I interviewed a doctor yesterday, Eddie, who is an expert on death and dying and wrote a great book called Dying with Ease. And he statistically was talking about the fact that he's utterly convinced that the death toll is at least 300,000 higher. That he said that there's all these unaccounted for deaths during this period of time and over the last 50 years, they could pretty much predict how many people a year would die within a, within a very narrow range. And he said that uh, an auto accidents are down, but here we have these unexplained deaths. It's some suicides, some opioids, more maybe, but we have this big block. And he said, you can't get straight answers on the numbers. And if you thought they were basically embarrassed by 275,000, think if it was 600,000, you know, I don't think they'd have a conscience if it was 6 million, but I mean, it would look even worse. Yeah, yeah, I, wouldn't, I would not um, disagree at all. And then you, you combine you combine that with all the folks who who are dying not of COVID, but because of COVID. And what I mean by that, and here I'm echoing Dr. Naid uh, Bedelia, is that you have all of these folks who, uh, who can't get care, right, because COVID is overwhelming the system. 
you know, folk are still sick with diabetes, still sick with hypertension, still having heart attacks, still still with cancer, you know, still trying to have babies and, you know, and the like. And so there are all of these kind of collateral or, you know, consequences or effects, um, you know, uh, we're in the middle of a storm, in the midst of a superstorm. And um, what it has revealed is that, uh, right, the callousness of the last decades uh, have come home to roost. Mm. I'm thinking of Jeremiah right there for a moment. Yeah, one of my favorites. Great truth teller, which of course meant he was ostracized and exiled. And uh, what you just said is true, because I know people who had an appendicitis and died because there was no hospital bed for what would have been a routine type of situation. And that is not counted. And so I, I want to lay the groundwork for our current moment because I have taken solace in your beautiful new book, Begin Again, you know, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own here in 2020. Before I get into the actual book, I was just curious on a personal level, what drew you so strongly to him? I know many are, I know I am, but you seem, at least in your eloquence and in your writing, you really, really connected to it in a beautiful way. Uh, did you grow up reading him or was it later? How did you uh, foster this beautiful, beautiful connection? Well, you know, I think um, I never, I didn't read Baldwin growing up. I didn't, you know, I read mostly fantasy when I was a child in, in, on the coast of Mississippi, you know. I didn't read him very, very much in, in undergraduate. I didn't undergraduate school at Morehouse. I, I only encountered him really seriously at, at in graduate school. And then I was hesitant, you know. Um, Baldwin was asking something of me that I wasn't mature enough to answer. Um, he was unsettling me forcing me to, to deal with my own wounds and, and traumas. And so I avoided him in the early days of my graduate career. Uh, felt more comfortable with Ellison. I loved his, uh, as I write in the book, I loved the way his mask fit, the elegance of his prose, the philosophical distance of his aesthetic commitments, you know. And so, you know, I, I didn't start reading him seriously until I started teaching him. And I, I you know, I, I've taught Fire next, the fire next time every year since I've been teaching. So that's over 20 plus years. And um, so when you combine that with graduate school, um, even in those kind of hesitant encounters, I've been reading him for a long time. And it was kind of finally when I allowed myself to answer the question that he was asking. You know, Baldwin is committed to this idea that the unexamined life is not worth living. And so before you can say anything about the world, you have to say, you have to be honest with yourself. And so I think the intimacy of my connection with his work has everything to do with, you know, uh, he, got, he grabbed my hand or the nape of my neck and forced me to grapple with the fact that, um, you know, I'm a vulnerable little boy still struggling with my daddy issues. And, you know, once, once I got that out, he opened up a world to me, you know. He allows me to be angry, rageful, and loving at the same time. Allows me to reach for the kinds of sentences that describe, you know, the torrent of my emotions, you know. Um, and so he's been a walking partner for 30 plus, for 30 years. Wow, thank you for that authenticity and also sort of a permission slip. Because while I've always enjoyed his work, enjoyed is not that thing, it's very moving. 
but I'll be damned if it doesn't always make me feel uncomfortable in some way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I thought it was me. I thought, oh, you know, he gets under my skin. He makes me think. He points out stuff, both externally and internally. It's it's good. It's but it's like a it's a hand grenade down there. Yeah, indeed. You know, it, but, but I go back. Yeah, in, in graduate school, it was really hard to deal with because in graduate school, you know, um, I had to deal with my colleagues. You know, it's one thing to grapple with Baldwin in the privacy of your own own, own room and in the privacy of your own spirit, right? But, you know, you have to navigate, you know, flushed faces, red cheeks, right? people who are made uncomfortable in their whiteness. And I'm having to negotiate that while I'm trying to negotiate my own mess. It was a bit too much, and I was too immature at the time to deal with it all. And yet there's something unique about his brilliance and literary voice that, and is so articulate, there's no one else quite like him, isn't it? I can't think, I know there's great writers and everybody, but he occupies a solo space, at least for me, and that there's a timelessness to it. And I feel like right now, it feels like he's writing about the moment. Well, you know, I think he's the most insightful critic we've ever produced around race and democracy. You know, you know, you think about those three, the chapter in de Tocqueville, de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and, you know, he has the three races chapter, and he, he begins that chapter by saying, now that we've dealt with the, you know, the issue of democracy, I'll now turn my, issue to, turn my attention to race, as if race is an afterthought when it comes to questions of American democracy, when in fact it's at the center of it all. Um, he's the inheritor of Emerson. He takes Ralph Waldo Emerson across the tracks, right? And Emerson's perfectionism looks differently in Baldwin's hands, right? He's the one who's thinking aesthetically about this place in its, on its own terms, right? In its own languages, in light of its own contradictions. So to my mind, as an essayist, he's, he's unparalleled when it comes to uh, getting at the heart of what, you know, getting at the heart of the contradiction uh, uh, that haunts this place. Um, and, and then, of course, he comes out of this preacherly tradition, right? He's drawing on, you know, uh, the pulpit, you know, this black homiletic tradition, you know, he's not only, you know, when you read Baldwin, you have to, you know, bring your bibliography with you or have a pen so that you can write down, trace out, uh, track the influences, you know. So not only are we seeing the influences of Henry James and and Marcel Proust and, and Shakespeare and the King James Bible, but you're also hearing the blues, you're hearing the black homiletic or preacherly tradition, you're hearing black language, you know, its rhythm, its syntax, right? So I think there's an authenticity and genuineness to uh, his critical insight. And I'm not trying to downplay the, the novels, although I think he's a much better essayist. But that's, that's more than, I think that's more my own predilections, my own taste than actually a substantive judgment, you know if that makes sense. It does. And I like him as much when he's on television or debating or anybody. Or <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. He's so brilliant and fierce and people that are oblivious come to the argument with their stone age weapons. And he's, you know, he's like uh, somebody out of the Avengers with his words and his angles. I mean, I enjoy him as much when his appearances, I still watch those for inspiration and insight. 
Yeah, man. And, you know, the thing is about Jimmy is that he's so courageous. You know, he's, you know, he's, he's very fragile, very vulnerable, you know, emotionally, physically. Um, but, man, his willingness to speak truth. I, I love this story. Um, you know, there was an event um, uh, with the Panthers and Betty Shabazz, the late, late widow of, of Malcolm X, was there with her children. And gunshots rang out. And everybody broke, everybody, you know, went for shelter, went for cover. And Jimmy um, cried out the babies and ran and covered them. Oh, my God. You know, that gives you a sense of who he is, you know. Uh, that's who he is. You know? And yet I always see him ultimately as a sad and tragic figure because he was just trying to live and exist in a world simply as he was. And yet the world just would never allow it to be. You know, I, when I interviewed Angela Davis for Begin Again, um, she said in so many ways, um, he was out there all by himself. I mean, can you imagine writing Giovanni's room in the 1950s? I know. <laughs> and just he was so brave and he was so little. And he's just like... I, it looks like he's always about to burst into tears, or I am, you know, he's just, but he's still there. He shows up. Oh, man. You know, the kids would beat him up on the on the playground, and he would come back and fight every day. Didn't matter. I mean, it's just a, it's a fierceness, a kind of courageousness in his own vulnerability, you know. Um, now, I'm not trying to make him a saint. Obviously, he wasn't. Uh, he would he would he would cringe at such a description, actually. Uh, he had all of his faults, and and there are moments in which you, when you read him, you feel like he's he's self-absorbed, that he's taking advantage of his family, even as he's taking care of him. You know, you read the some of the exchanges between him and David, and you just cry out, "Please, David, respond! I want to hear your voice." You know, he's he's his 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 he's demanding so much of you. Um, so I don't want to make him, you know, a saint. That's not the point. I think. Um, there's a there's a there's an insistence on living in the fullness of his humanity as he understood it. That is a lesson for all of us. But you're right. He does seem like a lonely, isolated solo creature. Yeah, there are moments, you know, that I, I chose the photo, the, the image uh, on for the book, uh, at least the U.S. edition of the book, um, that's Baldwin at a tea at a at a tea house in Bebek in Istanbul in Turkey, and you know they're, they they took the images of there were men all around him and you know he's smiling coquettishly at folks and you know flirting and all of this other stuff, um, but his eyes are distant, and you know the eyes on the cover are the focal point of the of the image, and you can see him looking elsewhere. Uh, that that that. You know, as he says, you know, I got to get the work done. You know, there's still work to do. So loneliness is sometimes the price of this, of bearing witness, you know. I know that intimately. I was going to say, do you connect and in any way identify as a young man from Mississippi and growing up? And I'll never forget the story you told me when you said you wanted a piano and your dad asked you if you were gay. And I felt like somebody punched me in the stomach. Yeah, you know, there are moments, you know. There are moments, um, you know, the parallels are, are 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 many, but they're not they're not, you know, they're 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 divergences, of course. But yeah, you know, I think 
you know, me grappling with the overbearing presence of my own father, whom I loved to death. Um, but how he deposited fear in my gut from an early age and how I've been trying to prove myself to be courageous ever since. Um, and how Baldwin, you know, gave me license to grapple with that, you know. Um, and, you know, to, you know, I'm not quite as uh, open about my emotions. Right? I don't, you know, I tend to put them, you know, as Toni Morrison said about Paul D., I tend to put them in a rusted tin can, you know. <laughs> um, but, but, but Baldwin, but Baldwin, you know, gives me um, space to deal with me um, um, in a way that's consistent with, with who I am that then allows me to say something on the page or to say something uh, on television, you know, because I'm, I'm not so much invested in, in the attention, but I, I am invested in being able to, to offer a different frame and speaking the truth. I feel like one of the reasons you have thrived, and I actually, was, for the audience, I was joking right before we came on because I've been doing this about five years or so, and you were gracious enough to come on when it was just a ramshack, a little sh nothing. And But I've watched you soar. It's like I said, I still get to interview you. But I feel like you're the same exact guy. And it's so uh, sadly rare, especially on mainstream channels, to hear somebody just speaking so fiercely and truthfully. And I, in a way, I see you as a descendant of James's legacy in that, and others have said it too. That's not any groundbreaking insight, but I think the appeal has been, and some of the things that have gone viral are you just telling it like it is, and you haven't seemed to be afraid. It's like if they say, "Well, you're never coming back again," you you would still sleep well. Oh yeah, you know I have a job. <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm paying. It's not like I'm paying my bills by 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 this stuff. You know, I mean, I think. At the end of the day, you know, um, the the you know you you one would be lying if one didn't acknowledge that you you like the attention and 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 the platforms and like so I don't want to say that but you know what I've learned from from reading uh, Baldwin all of these years um, is that you know the task is to make the suffering real, right no matter your own wounds, no matter your own messiness, no matter the, uh, your, your failures and your failings, right? The task that hand in your own way with your talents is to make the suffering real. Um, and, and we do that in the way that we can, right? So my task is to do it on the page, in the classroom, and sometimes on television and the radio. Um, and, you know, Begin Again was this kind of effort to put forward um, you know, to walk with Jimmy in this moment when the country had obviously betrayed us again, to to draw resources from him from him about how to pick up the pieces and push this damn boulder up the hill again. Well, he's certainly been doing that, and the book shows that. Uh, have you ever seen him? I as I do sometimes. Is he to me sort of symbolic for all the the underprivileged and the marginalized, the outsiders, like he's their voice, you know, and with the sad eyes, I just feel like James is their voice crying out to be loved and just to be simply left to live in peace and with a, a modicum of equality, humanity and dignity. 
You know, I, I see him as this extraordinary uh, mm-hmm. act of will. You know, Baldwin grew up in post, you know, uh, in Harlem post-depression, right? I mean, he didn't grow up in the Harlem of the Harlem Renaissance. He didn't grow up on sugar in Sugar Hill, right? I mean, so I mean, he's at the heart of this economic devastation. That's what he come. That's how he comes of age, right? And so for him to to grow up in the hood, you know, um, and to will himself into becoming this extraordinary writer, right? Uh, a gift to the world. Right. And is is just phenomenal, you know, to kind of think about how he imagined the expansiveness of the canvas of his own life. And then he began to create it. Um, and it's so to my mind, he's not only a voice in that kind of sociological sense, that political sense. He's an example of what it means to engage in the arduous, arduous task of self-creation under conditions of fugitivity, under conditions of captivity, right? So what does it mean for black people to dare to risk to create themselves, to imagine themselves outside of the expectations of a society that devalues them, and to do so at the highest level? Boy, there's a question. And why do you feel his words are so timeless? Like, I feel like now... There is a universal nature to it, maybe because there'll always be inequality and racism, prejudice and discrimination. Is that the sad truth of his timely universal messages? Well, no, I, I think I think on, on, a, on a certain level, you know, um, he offers us insight into who we are. And then there's just the beauty of his sentences, you know, I mean, you know, it's like reading Emerson. You know, when you read Emerson for an argument, you're gonna, you might get lost and frustrated. But I tell my students all the time, you know, for Emerson, each sentence is a universe unto itself. Focus there, sit there and watch and listen. Right. And so Baldwin, you know, you can just read any Baldwin. You find this quotable quote. Right. Uh, Each sentence contains multitudes to echo Whitman in this sense. So I think it's not only the insightfulness, the truth that he that he speaks and writes about. I think he does so beautifully, even when he, uh, even when the sentences aren't as disciplined, you know, even when the sentences meander a bit, uh, or when he gets a bit preachy, there's still, there's still a there there. And I think it's that not only political wisdom, ethical and moral wisdom, it's its beauty that, in, you know, that, that makes it so attractive across generations. Mm, so well said. I'm thinking that Go Tell It on the Mountain is still one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. It's just a beautiful book. And the first time I read it, I savored it like a the best meal of my life. And it, I was young, but I just, it was just, I get goosebumps right now even saying those words that I was like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember reading Go Tell It on the Mountain uh, my, my, I think my second or third time with Professor Albert Rabito and what he was able to do with that novel and how he opened it up with, you know, it, I read it in the context of an African-American religious history course. It was amazing. Yes. Yeah, so I, I remember that feeling, Paul. I wanted to shift to now to the America. And I was just wondering, I thought about this last night cause I knew you were coming on and I was wondering if, 
did American democracy just have a near-death experience, or are we still perhaps battling the cancer? We're not out of the woods yet. Oh yeah, it's the latter. You know, we're still in the ventilator. You know, to to use a familiar image these days. Um, Donald, again, we you know we don't want to think of Donald Trump as some unique figure, although he, in some ways, is. Because to think of him in that way absolves us of, of who we are and the problems that reside in the body of, of the demos, as it were. 74 million people, 73 plus million people voted for him, even with the evidence of his incompetence, his lying, his grift and, and, and corruption, you know. So it seems to me that that doesn't disappear. That is still a part of this place, you know, so... Um, we are in, in deep trouble, um, and we have to understand that. And the one thing that I want to insist is that we not trade one fantasy for another. <laughs> what a great line. And I'm glad you pointed that out. Cause I always see, I say he's the avatar for all of these folks. He's not, he didn't create any of it. He's just throwing gas on the fire. He's a Santa Ana winds when you have a wildfire. It just blows it. And he's given permission to people to be their worst self. And I still, I think even though Biden won, thank God, by what now, 7 million votes, maybe 8 million, it shocked me that after four years, 70 plus million people thought it was a good idea. In fact, more people who voted without knowing last time, I still... I can't get my heart and arms around that. And if I'm honest, I'm thinking of doing the James Baldwin route and like living abroad. I know you won't. We've talked about that, but I mean, I can go. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I think, you know, more people voted for him with the evidence than they did without it. Yeah. Where do you put that? Well, I mean, you know, I think the obvious, one obvious answer is that, you know, um, he was able to expand his electorate by appealing to white grievance and white fear and hatreds and the like. So, you know, this, there, there's a large segment of the, of, of the country that, that cleaves to this idea that America must remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe. They're watching, they're looking at their TikTok and seeing all these interracial couples or they're, they're, they're watching television and seeing all these racially ambiguous children, as I've said before, and the culture doesn't feel the same, right? And so there, that, that, that cultural anxiety evidences itself in supporting someone who's obviously not equipped to be the leader of this country. So there's that. That's obvious and easy to me. But then it goes back to something we talked about earlier, and that is the selfishness and greed. There are folks out here who don't give a damn about white and black folk. They just care about money. And they're the big guns. They're the ones who have made record profits. Yeah, Exactly. Absolutely. And then you have those who aspire to be them, <laughs> you see. Exactly. And so they're more concerned about their stock stock portfolios or their 401ks and the like. And so that kind of selfishness and greed, and, and that's, and you know, I keep telling folk, that's not the possession of white folks. That's why you saw an increased number of supporters in Latinx communities and black communities and Asian American communities for Donald Trump. Selfishness is not the possession of white people. It's, it's across the board. And so, um, you know, between all of those factors, um, at least it led me to conclude um, that, you know, the election was part of the moral reckoning. It was not the answer. So we're still in it. We're still in it. 
Well said. Yeah, we're still in it. Like you said, the patient's still on the ventilator, no pun intended. I mean, it's so true. I, I know I want to let you go because you have a busy day, but I did want to ask you, you know, hope is so important, and we talk about hope. You can't have false hope. Where do we find hope? Where does your son Langston, that beautiful soul who should be looking out, hopefully on a bright horizon, but look what, you know, he's dealing with. is He's just getting out in the world, and we have a lot of young people who listen of all ages, all walks around the world. It's a global show. Where do we find hope now? And, and be honest, if, there, if you're not hopeful, that's fine, but I, I don't want to be a Pollyanna. I don't want to be a Cassandra. I just want, I wonder though, is there any seeds under the snow that might grow here? You know, there's a line in um, the no, no, no Name in the Street, which is the book at the heart of Begin Again. And it's 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 a line that struck that struck me, and and every time I read it, I'm I'm always kind of taken, and I want to read it right quick. He says, "Since Martin's death in Memphis, and that tremendous day in Atlanta, something has altered in me. Something has gone away. Perhaps even more than the death itself, the manner of his death has forced me into a judgment concerning human life and human beings, which I have." always been reluctant to make. Indeed, I can see that a great deal of what the knowledgeable would call my lifestyle is dictated by this reluctance. Incontestably, alas, most people are not in action worth very much. And yet every human being is an unprecedented miracle. One tries to treat them as the miracles they are while trying to protect oneself against the disasters they've become. That formulation for me, Paul, that human beings are at once miracles and disasters is the source of hope for me. That means that it's not a naive hope. It's not this optimism. This is not pan this is not Voltaire's Candide, right? But instead, that if human beings show up, if we show up on behalf of a more just world, uh, there's a chance for a miracle. Right? If we don't, then then we seal our fate. But because we are both disasters and miracles, if we show up, we at least have a chance. That's where I find hope. And I hope that's where uh, young people uh, can dip into that reservoir, because that's, that's the reservoir that make, make, makes that the tradition that made me possible, right, so vibrant, right? When the world seemed as dark as it possibly could be, right, someone was still able to find within themselves resources to imagine the world otherwise. So wherever we are, there's a chance for a miracle. And that's the source of hope. God, that might be the most beautiful thing anyone's ever said on this show after 750 or whatever there are. I have tears. And when I hear in those beautiful, timeless words again in your elegant voice and reading and the soul and your breath, is that if you're listening to this, and it goes for me, all of us, the hope that we're looking for, that spark, is right there in you. And it's a cliche. We are the change we've been waiting for. We don't need daddy to do it or corporate core or Jeff Bezos. It's all of us. And it's all we can do is come alive, stand up and say, I'm in and my life is dedicated to a higher humanity and a better way. And that's why I'm here and stick out my hand and be vulnerable like you are every day on TV and James Baldwin was throughout his life. Be brave enough to be the miracle part of who we are rather than 
the darker aspects. That's what I hear in all that, in your words. Indeed. I couldn't say it better. You are really a light of inspiration, and I know you do it just because you have to. I feel so blessed that we met and that you care enough to come on and, and be who you are in the world. Well, I appreciate you. And, you know, stay safe. Stay safe and keep shining that light, Doc. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.